Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. The following program contains adult content, explicit language, and sexual themes. Listener discretion is advised. And it contains murder. Lots and lots of murder. You stinking bastard. People tell me, hey, you're going to go die and go to hell. I'm not alone. Down for 911, where's your emergency? Oh, this is Sandy. I'm pretty one look. Talk to the roof. One in the chest, one in the head. Fired by Detective Sergeant Roger Rogerson. I was uh, branching out, that's when the cannibalism started, eating the heart and uh, the arm muscle. Oh, I wear a male car with his hands to a coffee table and this thing's a pull out of his backside. Carl Williams is a wobbly bottom little Cherub face, cherub face little boy who would do it, 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 who would do we're a comedy true crime podcast focusing on some of the lesser known crime stories from Australia. And indeed around the globe. What will you be talking about this week, Barney? I'm going to talk about Daniel Stanny Reginald. His awful childhood turned him into a psychopath and potential serial killer. After years of schooling himself in the art of murder, in 2011 he finally acted out his fantasies. Ugh. How about you, T. Dizzle? Okay, tea dizzle now. Thank you so much for that one, Devin. It's going to haunt my nightmares. Well, many murderers take souvenirs to relive the rush of their heinous crimes. Today I'll be talking about a sick fuck who decided to keep his victim's body, even moving across the country with it. Wow. Yeah. Road trip. Yeah, yeah. It, not quite as fun as Weekend at Bernie's. No. Nowhere near. Yeah. That film doesn't stand up, by the way. Did you ever think it would? No. (laughs) (laughs) Now, before we commence our sordid tales, we'd like to do a little bit of listener feedback. Would you like to start us off on that one, Tara? Certainly. Julie Farron um, actually asked us, can you go through your theme at the beginning and end of your podcast sometime? I would love to know who they are. Also, what is the man talking about a wobbly bottom cherub? Who is he and what is he talking about? Well, these are all very good questions. They are indeed, and many people have asked them. Um, also, they want to know like what the woman's saying and the call the police bit, but we're not 100% sure. It's hard to figure out. Yeah. Well, the first uh, sample there is the Golden State Killer breathing into the phone. Yeah, because he liked to make horrible follow-up phone calls to his victims because he's truly scum. Um, The second one we have is an angry onlooker insulting Catherine Burney as she comes out of court. 
He calls mm. her a stinking bastard. Mm. Uh, the third one is Arthur Shawcross. Yeah, he had quite the body count, and he apparently an, he won't be alone in hell. He's a nasty piece of work. The next one we have here is a 911 call from Sandra Herald, who uh, called the police because her pet chimpanzee was eating her friend Charla Nash's face. And that appeared in episode four. Uh, we also have uh, The Police Are Coming. Um, that's from an Aussie as we did in episode three about Daniel McConnell, who is a great Aussie legend who thwarted a, a criminal in his jocks. He certainly is. Uh, number five is Ray Martin. He's um, a TV journalist. He's talking about Roger Rogerson. We covered Roger Rogerson in episode 29. Um, branching out, that's when the cannibalism started. That's some Jeffrey Dahmer right there. Number seven is Chopper. Um, he's talking about how he feels about Carl Williams. And his wobbly bottom. And his wobbly bottom. Chopper is covered in episode 38 and Carl Williams in 53. Now, the sounds that sound to me like horses going, like, nay and stuff, yeah. um, that's actually ancient Aztec human sacrifice tunes because apparently that's a thing. Number nine is Ted Bundy. Uh, from Married with Children. Yeah, yeah, hilarious man. Um, and the woman in the outro theme, that's serial killer Aileen Wernos. Um, she felt that there was uh, some kind of... Sonic pressure. On her head, well, for many years. Since 1997. Yeah, that's when it started. Mm. So there you go. Now, of course, this episode is brought to you by our wonderful and generous patrons. If you'd like to become a patron, go to our website for details. That's bloodymurderpodcast.com. Michael Caine says, let's get murdery. Ooh, well, who am I to not give the man what he wants? Denise Annette Huber was born November 22nd, 1967 in Modesto, California. After graduating from high school in 1985, she received her bachelor's degree in social sciences from the University of California. Following college, she worked as a waitress and as a clerk in a department store while looking for work in the field that she'd studied. By all accounts, Denise was a joyful and caring person who loved travelling, music, reading and water skiing. On the evening of November 2nd, 1991, 23-year-old Denise left her parents' house, where she lived, in Newport Beach, and drove to pick up a friend. Denise had two tickets for a Morrissey concert that night in Inglewood. How soon is now indeed? Well, that's 91. That would have been Morrissey's uh, solo period, so like Suedehead, that kind of thing. He was pretty popular at that time. Yeah, yeah. November spawned a monster. Well, you did. Yeah. Well, January spawned a monster in my case. Yes. Her boyfriend, Stephen Horrocks, couldn't go with her, so she went with her friend, Robert Calvert. After the concert, Denise and Calvert drove to a bar in Long Beach. They stayed until closing time, which was around 1.30 to 2am. Denise then drove Calvert home to Huntington Beach, dropping him off just after 2am. Denise never returned home. The next morning, on June 3rd, 1991, Denise's mother, Ione, called Denise's BFF, Tammy Brown, to ask if she knew where Denise was. Tammy made a few phone calls but didn't come up with any information, so she decided to drive around looking for Denise's Honda. At around 10pm that night, Tammy spotted the car, which had a blown-out tyre, parked on the shoulder of Highway 73, just before the exit to Newport Beach. Tammy phoned Denise's parents, who drove to the scene and inspected the car. It was unlocked and Denise's keys were not inside. The area where the car had been found was well lit and several emergency phone boxes were visible nearby. 
The chain link fence that bordered the freeway near the car had an opening that led down a gravel slope to a street near gas stations, restaurants, pay phones and a hotel. So she wasn't in the middle of nowhere. She mm. was in civilization. Yeah, right. Denise Huber had disappeared without a trace. It would take three years and what the Huber family considers a miracle before police would discover what had happened to Denise. Where did she go? Tell me. No. I'm doing a long pause because I'm changing. I'm, it's three years of passing. Oh, okay. It's a long pause when three years pass. Do we have to wait three years for you to tell me what happened? Yes. And we have to sit here quietly the whole fucking time. <sighs> it wasn't something she could quite put her finger on. But 44-year-old paint distributor Elaine Canalia just had a really weird feeling about the truck parked in John Famolaro's driveway. Gave her the heebie-jeebies? Big time. Big time. Heebie-jeebies are not good. Although there was nothing overtly suspicious about the truck, she said there was this real strong pull coming from it. Canalia had visited Famolaro's house on July 9th, 1994 to buy some painting supplies and had written down the license plate number of the truck. On July 12th, when a detective friend came to her warehouse to buy some paint, Canalia gave him the license number and suggested that he check it. After making some calls, he found out that the truck had been stolen in California. Oh, intriguing. Yeah. On the morning of July 13th, 1994, which is three years after um, Denise's disappearance, Deputy Sheriff Joseph D. Guacomo received a call about a possible stolen truck parked outside a house in Dewey, Arizona. Oh, Arizona. Yeah, this we're truck in Arizona. Is. So that's a long way from... Um, California. California, yeah. When he arrived at the house, the deputy found a 24-foot rental truck that matched a report of a truck stolen in California several months earlier, backed into the driveway. The truck was locked and the deputy noticed that a power cord ran into the truck under the back door. The truck was full of paint cans and painting equipment and the power cord ran to a freezer at the back of the truck, which was locked and sealed with masking tape. A freezer? A freezer. Like an upright freezer or a chest freezer? Um, like a big chest freezer. Okay. Believing that he'd stumbled onto a mobile drug lab, Deputy Di Guacomo called local narcotics officers to assist him. After the narcotics investigators arrived, the locksmith unlocked the freezer. When they cut through the tape and opened the freezer, they were floored by a terrible and particularly pungent foul odour. Well, that wouldn't be bloody murder fragrance because that smells good. Exactly. No, it wouldn't be. That would just smell divine. It wasn't lady swears. No, lady swears. They smell beautiful. I always knew they would. Yeah. After opening the freezer, they saw it contained something wrapped in a black garbage bag. The bag had frost and ice crystals that were consistent with having been in the freezer for a long time. Oh, like freezer burns, yeah. After cutting through three layers of garbage bags, they found a naked female body, frozen solid in the fetal position, with the hands tightly secured behind her back with metal handcuffs. Finding no identifying information for the body and no signs that the person had been killed in the freezer, the authorities sealed the freezer and the truck and had them towed to forensic pathologists. So who is John Famolaro and what the fuck is the deal with this sarcophagus truck? With a chest freezer with a body in it? Yeah, I want to know. Tell me. Chest freezer with real chests in it. Yeah. 
John Joseph Famalaro was born on June 10, 1957, in Long Island, New York. He was the youngest of three children. When he was a year old, the family moved to Santa Ana, California. His Air Force veteran father, Angelo, was a businessman. His mother, Anna, a stay-at-home mum, was a nasty piece of work and the dominant force in the family. Long Island is not actually an island. It's actually a terminal marine. It's the uh, debris left from a melting glacier. Did you know that? No, I didn't. Wow, you're fascinating. And frequently used religion. <laughs> Do you like how dismissive I was? Yeah, that was good. <laughs> and frequently used religion to justify her harsh behaviour and to intimidate others. When she thought her children had messed up, she often yelled at them that they were going to hell. The children generally coped by following their father's passive lead, giving in to their mother's demands to avoid confrontation. The Famolaro children never invited friends over because they were embarrassed by their mother's hoarding. Their house was covered in high stacks of newspapers, books and piles of crap. Anne would inspect each piece of garbage the children tried to throw away to make sure she thought it really needed to be thrown out. Oh, I need that apple core. Yeah, we might need to hoard that. She would also listen in on all of their phone calls. Oh, that's creepy. Yeah, but these are actually, when you look at her, these are actually would be considered good things compared to the rest, i got to say. Really? The family regularly attended church but had little interaction with fellow church members. Others in the neighbourhood avoided Anne as she was a nosy and bad-tempered person who often became dramatically upset over minor things. When Famolaro's sister came home from school one day, she found a for sale sign at the front of their house and was told by her mother that the family was heading toward the hills because the Russians were coming. She said her mother stored food for when the world ended and saved silver so the family could use it when there was a one-world society. Yeah, though, yeah, that's when, when the apocalypse comes. Are you going to need all the silver you can get? Yeah, that's right. People only accept silver. <laughs> and bollers. That's when bollers will have a rush. Yeah, silver and bollers. Um, yeah, that's, that's that's Barney dollars. Yeah, they're worth, they'll be worth a lot. Then. Yeah. They're not worth anything now. Not even. They're kind of worth less than nothing. Yeah, you it, need a wheelbarrow of them just to get a can of Coke. Yeah. Famolaro was a weak and sickly child. He had a small frame and was very thin and hunched over. The bullies at school nicknamed him Famolaro. Oh, how inventive. I know. They're so witty uh, because they claimed that he was effeminate and meek. He had few friends and was described as a loner, but he didn't show any signs of violence as a kid. Famolaro received little attention from his mother, who instead fawned over his older brother Warren, who was outgoing and did well at school. Warren's better than you. Warren is so much better than you. Warren's amazing. I love Warren, but you... You suck. Uh, Warren's pretty sweet. You why, suck. Why can't you be more like Warren? Yeah. Hey, John, you suck. Warren yeah. rocks. Be more like Warren. <laughs> Warren forever. Famolaro's sister, Marion, tried to protect him, often helping him with his homework and riding the bus with him so he wouldn't be picked on by the other kids. His mother, Anne, was a violent disciplinarian who would hit her kids with a belt, with a Bible belt. What, a whole tri-state area? Yep, That's massive. Pretty, pretty hard to pick up. but it probably strong. Probably fucking hurt if you got hit with it. It really would. But to ensure that she really messed her sons up completely, she insisted on bathing them herself up until their teen years. Famolaro's older brother Warren, dreamy wonderful Warren, said that Anne paid special attention to scrubbing his genitals and was obsessed with their cleanliness. 
Well, you've got to give the undercarriage a bit of a how's your father, you know, make make sure it's all sparkling. I remember when um, your oldest son, Mo, was only about five or something, and he, he asked me in all seriousness, he was like, hey, Tara, how do you wash your penis? Because he wanted to know more about how different men wash their, well, people, I guess, wash their penises. Yeah. I, I told him I just put it in the dishwasher like a normal person. <laughs> well, you cut it off and then put it in the dishwasher. He was kind of like, oh, you don't have one. Right. And then he never spoke to me again. No, just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> this is the same child. I remember we were in Target or some department store. You sent him over to me and got him to say quite loudly, hey, Tara, are you shopping for new panties? <laughs> I remember that. Yeah, 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 you would. You were so pleased with yourself. I really was. That was pretty funny. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, this kid, obsessed with my genitals. So Warren said that when his mother scrubbed his junk, her breathing escalated as if she got an energy surge. Oh, creepy as fuck. <sighs> Gotta clean your junk. She was maniacally focused on ensuring that her children did not engage in and were not exposed to any sexual activity. She did not allow them to take any sex education classes and did not permit them to see anything on screen that was more pornographic than hand-holding. Hand-jobs? Yeah, they're pretty bad. Oh, hand-holding. Isn't that just when your palms fuck each other? You can only watch... Human porn, no animal porn until you're 12. Yeah, none at all. No human porn either. (laughs) Nothing. Oh, Oh, really? Yeah, nothing. No, this episode of Gilligan's Island is too salacious. You are not to watch it. Oh, that's right. You can see a little bit of Ginger's cleavage. Oh, Ginger, she's going to burn in hell. Come here, let me clean your junk. No. (laughs) Were you talking to me? I'm quite sure it's quite dirty. You'd be right about that. Yeah. Barney doesn't shower that regularly. What? Don't tell people that. <laughs> it's okay. You're going to edit it out anyway. I've got cap- I've got a huge vagina full of heroin. I'm just going to squirt some Captain Moonlight beard oil all over it. <laughs> oh, oily. Um, so their mother would also loiter around the boys' rooms at night, listening at their doors, and would barge in unexpectedly to make sure they weren't masturbating. Yeah, that's, that's kind of a bit uh, wrong. Yeah, you don't do that? Uh, My kids do it to me, but... (laughs) Oh, no. When Warren was at college, Anne secretly followed him and his girlfriend Mary to a motel room and waited until after Warren left. She then barged into the room and confronted Mary. She swore at her, slapped her in the face, and ranted about religion and sex. She said Mary was never going to have Warren and claimed that Mary would die that night. When Mary asked how that was going to happen... And tackled her and began choking her. No, oh, this is how. Yeah, <laughs> like this. Don't dirty my favourite son's junk yeah. with your heinous lady parts. Warren is awesome. You should tag John. Yeah, you could do what you like to John, but Warren, he's great. We love Warren. Have you seen my I Heart Warren tattoo? When Mary tried to escape, Anne said that she couldn't leave the room because she'd paid snipers across the street to shoot her if she tried. Wow, that's uh, believable. That's awesome. awesome. I love that. Yeah, she's very well organised. Um, so poor 23-year-old Mary managed to push her off, run to the manager's office and call the police. Uh, she said she initially pressed charges against Anne but dropped them at Warren's urging. Oh, don't press charges on me, Mum. She's the reason why my penis is so clean. Mm, sparkling. Oh, God. <laughs> when Famalara was a teenager, Anne sent him to a seminary. Because of course she did. That's a priest school, isn't it? Priest school. 
Not yeah. a priest preschool. A priest preschool. No, it's not one of those. Well, kind of. Yeah, they'd, they'd like that, wouldn't they? <laughs> oh, Jesus Christ. No. There's been royal commissions about this. Around this time, Anne became involved in local politics and campaigned against abortion and pornography. Oh, this is not going to end well. Tell me more. (laughs) Wow. She ran for a seat on the Santa Ana City Council, but on the same day she announced her candidacy, her oldest, bestest, favouritest son, Warren, was arrested for sexually molesting a 10-year-old girl and a 10-year-old boy and for having unlawful intercourse with a 17-year-old girl. Maybe in hindsight some masturbation wouldn't have been such a bad idea, yeah. huh? touch yourself, Warren. Yeah, touch yourself more. I'm loitering outside your door to make sure you are masturbating. Mm. Um, yeah, so... um. Yeah. (laughs) Fuck, huh? Maybe don't look up to Anne as an ideal parent. Or the father who let this happen. Let's not blame it all on her. Anyway, this ended Anne's political campaign. Suck it, Anne. (laughs) Warren was convicted and was committed to Patton State Hospital as a mentally disordered sex offender. To get away from the embarrassment, his parents moved to Prescott, Arizona. I wonder if John was like, I don't look so bad now, do I? Yeah. Yeah. You hey. want me to be more like Warren? Okay. Hey, Mum, how do you like me now? Yeah. Yeah, actually kind of did. Yeah. He kind of did. So Famolaro attended several years of college in Southern California, but never actually obtained a degree. Instead, he ended up making his living as a house painter and handyman. He set up business in a warehouse in Laguna Hills, California, where he also lived. His ex-girlfriend said he had a good sense of humour and they described him as fun, intelligent, nice, considerate and polite. But they also described him as secretive, manipulative and a smooth talker. He was a smooth operator. Mm, Hey, baby. He'd also... Okay, this is weird. He also handcuffed two of his girlfriends without their permission. Not the purple fluffy ones that are easy to get out of. No, like actually handcuffed them and sort of, you know, was... Deprived them of liberty. Yeah, and was like almost rapey and pretty intense with them, which they said really freaked them out. But they still went out with him afterwards because boys will be boys, I guess. I hate that term. So do I. But it kind of sums up a vibe, you know. In the summer of 1992, Famolaro moved to Arizona because his father, who suffered from Parkinson's disease, had been hospitalized there. Well, that's nice. Yeah, but, I mean, you know. He's going to look after his dad. Yeah, he can go hang out with his mum. No. No. <laughs> in early 1994, Famolaro lost his painting contractor's licence in Arizona after unhappy customers complained that he did shitty work and refused to fix his mistakes. He just painted, you're a dick, in capitals on people's houses. You'd have to be pretty bad painter to lose your painter's licence. I didn't even know you needed a painter's licence. Maybe he was painting under the influence. Maybe that's what he studied at university. Well, he studied um, to be a chiropractor for some of the time. Right. It didn't seem to catch. No. He was also really vindictive if he gave a quote to someone, but he wasn't hired for the job. One of his neighbours said that he pelted his house with dozens of eggs after the man hired someone else to paint his house. I'll paint your house for you. Here, make an omelette, bastard. Yeah, he painted it with eggs. He did. Mm. Mm-hmm. So we're, we're jumping back here. After thawing out the frozen body found in the back of the truck, Dr. Anne Bucholtz conducted an autopsy. The body's head had been wrapped with three white kitchen garbage bags. 
Grey tape covered the face from the mouth to the upper eyelids. The head had a lot of external injuries and the mouth had been plugged with a piece of cloth that had fallen out during the thawing. The handcuffs around the wrists were so tight um, that you couldn't slip your fingers through them. Um, They had to cut them off with bolt cutters. She then took fingerprints from the hands, which were later matched to the fingerprints that had been taken for Denise Hubert's California driver's license. Wow, they found Denise three years later. Yeah, in a freezer in Arizona. Wow. Dr. Bukholz described Denise's skull as basically shattered. In some of the indentations were embedded pieces of the white plastic bags that had been wrapped around Denise's head, so she concluded that the blows had been inflicted after the plastic bags had been put over Denise's head. Oh, so I she know. was probably still alive then? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. If that's the cause of death, yeah. So Dr. Bukholz reconstructed her skull and concluded that Denise's head had suffered at least 31 separate blows and determined that this was the cause of her oh, death. Oh, right, yeah, yeah. Um, she also found evidence of sexual assault. When police searched Famolaro's house, they found it was heavily cluttered with stacks of newspapers, books, receipts and boxes neatly organised in stacks. Oh, he's a hoarder like his old lady. Just like mum. Two bloodstained boxes on a shelf in his garage had the word Christmas written in marker on the outside. I bet there's not Christmas Mm, in there. No, it was a very deceptive labelling. It should say un-Christmas. Yeah, the opposite of Christmas. One box contained a large black garbage bag, um, the same kind that were used to hold Denise's body in the freezer. In the bag were smaller boxes that contained items belonging to Denise, including her wallet, checkbooks, makeup, car keys, credit cards and driver's licence, along with the clothes that she was seen wearing on the night of her disappearance. So it's kind of helpful for police, I think, when the murderer is a hoarder. Yeah, Because they absolutely. don't throw anything out. All the evidence is there. Yeah, um, the box also contained a blood-stained hammer and several blood-stained items of men's clothing. So he even commemoratively kept his own he clothes. He kept his own clothes when he committed the murder? Yes. Oh, wow, what an idiot. Yeah, well, I mean, oh, I think his idiocy is probably one of the nicer things about him yeah, compared to his right. violence, his handcuffing, his abduction, his raping. The other box contained a roll of duct tape a blood-stained nail puller and white plastic garbage bags that were the same kind that covered Denise's head. Inside the bag was a grey tarp that was covered in dried blood. The roll of duct tape was the same kind of tape that had been used to cover Denise's face and the end of the tape matched the tearing on a piece of tape found with the body. So it's the same roll. Mm. It was later proved that the blood-stained nail puller was the murder weapon. That's what he hit her in the head 31 plus times. Oh, with. like a device to pull nails out yeah. of a plank kind of thing, not a thing to do your Oh, uh, no, this has to do with fingernails. With, yeah, no, right. no, it's to do with, you know, mm. hammers and nails and shit. Yeah, I get it. Just do asking. You, do no, you? no, no. Can you start again? <laughs> uh, sure, why not? All right, everyone, going back to the start. Keys to the handcuffs on Denise's wrists were found in a desk drawer. They also discovered a fake police badge. Police found a receipt for the freezer showing that it had been ordered on June 10th, 1991, which was a week after Denise's disappearance, and delivered the next day. Well, he really doesn't throw anything away, does he? No, he he doesn't. Nothing at all. Well, including Denise's body. Yeah. He was even hoarding that. Yeah. Wow. But also, I mean, it's like he didn't order it until a week after he'd killed her. So was he like, I really want to keep this, but it's going to go up. What do I, what, how, do I, how do I do this? Mm, freezer. 
The boxes had shipping labels with the address of a warehouse in Laguna Hills um, in California. At the time of Denise's disappearance, Famolaro owned and operated a painting business out of that warehouse, which he also lived in. On July 18th, forensic scientists examined Famolaro's former warehouse unit in Laguna Hills. Although it had been cleaned and years had passed, they actually found blood matching Denise's on the floorboards. Yeah, that stuff just does not go away, does it? No, and head injuries, like it it really, you bleed a lot from a head Mm, wound. Absolutely. Famolaro has never confessed to Denise's murder. Authorities believe Famolaro happened upon Denise Huber in the early hours of June 3rd, walking along the roadside after her tyre had blown out. They think he used the police badge to try to convince her to trust him and handcuffed her when she, like, I don't know, either put up a fight or refused to go with him. He then took her back to the warehouse he lived in where he raped and killed her. During the three years that Denise had been missing, her family had never stopped looking for her. They'd placed a 6 by 30 foot missing persons banner on the roof of an apartment building overlooking the area where her abandoned car was discovered. They'd sent flyers to businesses and newspapers across the country and did numerous television interviews just to keep everyone like aware of the case and keep focus on it. Now, in amongst all the other crap they found at Famolaro's, there were a lot of newspaper articles about Denise and even a VHS video recording of a TV show, of Inside Edition, that her parents oh. had gone on talking about her disappearance. Hmm. So I don't know if they were his wank bank or what, but he's certainly had them in his possession. Well, there certainly are buckets of evidence against him, aren't there? Oh, they had so much evidence. And he still wouldn't confess. Nah. What a cunt. Yeah. Uh. He should be more like Warren. <laughs> what? No. <laughs> Warren was awful too. I know. It's more They're like both Anne. shit. No, Anne was rubbish yeah. too. Have you been listening? <laughs> I've been listening to myself talking the words I wrote. Oh. My car was like a rolling billboard with signs all over it, Denise's father Dennis said. I looked. Every time I saw some girl with long brown hair, I'd have to make sure I saw her face. Like every girl he sees that looks even vaguely like her, he just has to make sure it isn't her. For years and years and years. Her mother Ione missed doing many of the things she and Denise had done together, such as going out to lunch, going to the beach and cooking. After Denise's disappearance, Ione underwent several surgeries, including surgery for cancer. She believed the stress from the loss of Denise contributed to her ill health. Oh, Oh, I would have. Yeah, absolutely. No doubt. Yeah, indeed. During the years Denise was missing, her father Dennis had a sick feeling that never went away. He felt even sicker whenever there was news that a body or human bones had been found. On one occasion, the Ubers took a trip to Palm Springs to try and get some time to relax. But as soon as they got there, they heard news of a body being discovered in the desert. So they drove back home because they thought that the body might be Denise's. The next day, they learnt that it wasn't. Yeah, I'm sure that happened to them dozens of times I over, know. over three years. Yeah. I know, like every time mm. they heard something like that. What a state to live in. Yeah. A day or two before she was murdered, Denise had left a note on her father's computer screen at home, signed with a smiley face that said, Hi, Dad. I love you. Have a great day. Love, Denise. The note had become his most prized possession. Oh, that's beautiful. It would, wouldn't it? God damn. Mm. Dennis was suffering from many health problems, too, that he attributed to the stress surrounding Denise's disappearance and her death. 
At Famalara's trial, Denise's parents, Ione and Dennis, testified that their lives were turned upside down by their daughter's sudden disappearance. They both said that words alone could not adequately describe three years of not knowing or their grief after learning she was dead. The judge noted the extraordinary impact the crime had had on the young woman's parents. Jeff Huber, Denise's brother, told the judge that he had seen his parents aged 20 years since his sister's disappearance and murder. Ione believes that the problems in Famalaro's family life do not excuse what he did to her daughter. She said he was old enough to have accepted some responsibility for himself. Famalaro was convicted of first-degree murder, kidnapping and sodomy. A jury of nine women and three men recommended that Famalaro be sentenced to death, and this sentence has actually stood up after numerous appeals. But the execution may never happen. Capital punishment has essentially been put on hold in California since 2006 because of a judge's ruling that the lethal injection used could cause inhumane suffering. Mm, That's right, yeah. He'll die of old age in prison, I believe, before he gets the death penalty, Denise's father said. And her mother added, we'll probably die before he does. That's, um, That's so sad. Yeah, and so strange. Um, yeah, the Ubers really feel that um, that the woman who called in the number plate, they feel like that was some kind of divine intervention and a miracle. Because if she hadn't done that, I mean, yeah, they I had can, no way of I, finding her. I can see her. how they they would believe that, but leaving a, a body in a chest freezer in a stolen, stolen vehicle, a, in a stolen truck in the front of your house, yes, that's going to get discovered. If if he actually owned that truck. Maybe they never would have found her. Yeah, also the um, the power cord was suspicious going out to the truck because it makes oh, yeah. it look like a meth lab. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, like that's not overly... But you could hide that, though, if you backed it into the driveway. Uh, but look, I stolen feel like, truck. Oof. I feel like, yeah, there would be ways. But, wow, he, like, hoarded her body. So, Anne, wonder what ha- happened to her. I'd like to hear more about Anne and maybe her upbringing. Right. I don't know much more about her. I know that when um, when... Famalara was arrested because she lived near him, but she's like, I don't know what he does. I don't know him well. Clearly, I don't know him. You know, like she did the Mariah Carey. Um, But, yeah, it would be interesting because she sounds sounds worthy of a a B-grade horror movie. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. Sounds like the mother and Carrie. Yeah. Or um, she does sound like the mother and Carrie. Or like Sybil. One of those things. Yeah. 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 Yeah, Flowers in the Attic kind of creepy ass shit. Wow. Interesting story. Um, Fascinating. Tell it again. No. (laughs) I'm not going to. Um, So, all right, Prank Monkey, tell me what time it is. It's True Crime Nerd Time. True Crime Nerd Time. True Crime Nerd Time. True Crime Nerd Time. True Crime Nerd Time is an opportunity for you, our listeners, to give us your recommendations for anything true crime related. It can be a book, movie, TV, series, documentary, graphic novel, song, or just about anything that has scratched your true crime itch. Like an episode of Better Homes and Gardens based on H.H. Holmes' Murder House. Oh, I like it. Mm. So, Tara, are you itchy? All over. You can record your voice, just do it on your phone, we'll play it, or write it, and we'll read it out. I have a scorcher here from Professor Bambi Dude Man Lady Pants Jr. the third from Lee and Gather. 
<laughs> Clearly, that's a real name. <laughs> so this is uh, her slash his review. Slash there. Their review of the TV documentary miniseries Wormwood. I love that. It was awesome. Frank Olsen plunged from the 10th floor hotel window, but his son was never convinced it was suicide. In Wormwood, he and Errol Morris try to unravel the truth behind what happened. Now, Errol Morris is a documentary genius who uh, also directed The Thin Blue Line, amongst other things. That's from the late 80s, isn't it? It's one of the earliest sort of successful true crime documentaries. Yeah, yeah. This six-part Netflix series explores every angle of the suspicious demise of Frank Olsen, a family man and army scientist who apparently killed himself in 1953. How Olsen came to plunge from the 10th floor window of a New York hotel has obsessed his son Eric for more than 60 years and dominated his entire life. Through present-day interviews, past interviews and brilliantly directed reenactments, Morris slowly reveals this complex tale drawing parallels with Hamlet throughout, a son so obsessed with his father's killing that all other life falls away as he drives himself mad in pursuit of the truth. Yeah, good parallels there. While stationed at Camp Dietrich in Maryland in the early 50s, Frank worked on biochemical weapons and a bizarre drug trial where he and many others were secretly given LSD and interrogated. Yeah, that doesn't sound like any fun at all. Doesn't, does it? Mm-mm. Throwing him into a paranoid state and making him want to leave his job, it also led the powers that be to see him as a security risk to the CIA. Did he throw himself out of the window during a flashback or moment of hopelessness, or were there more sinister forces at work? Morris and Olsen take their time over the details and the whole thing is given life by overlapping dramatic reconstructions in which Peter Sarsgaard masterfully plays Frank as an unhappy figure who feels like a failure for the damage his research into chemical warfare did when secretly used against the enemy in the Korean War. It is shot beautifully with the 50s sequences looking like a Coen Brothers movie. Ooh, you've pricked my interest. They're amazing, really. The documentary segments often adopt unconventional, disorientating visual styles, reminding the audience that all is not what it seems. Eric's need to know what happened in that room is the constant motif. 20 years after his dad's death, he sees in a newspaper that the CIA had been conducting experiments with LSD and that his father had been one of the subjects. A reluctant Ford administration does its best to throw off interference, inviting a now adult Eric and his family to the Oval Office to receive an official apology for, get this, non-specific mishandling of the situation. Yeah, it was pretty lame. It was supposed to provide a full stop, but like everything else in this program, it just raises more questions. I don't want to give too much away, so... So all I say, if you love quality true crime documentaries, you must watch Wormwood. It's a fucking masterpiece. It really is a fucking masterpiece. Yeah, you've seen it, haven't you? You were talking about this a couple of weeks ago. I was raving about it. I love it. It's fantastic. And my boyfriend's not super into this stuff, but he was glued to it as well. Well, thanks to Professor Bambi Dude Man Lady Pants Junior the third from Lee and Gatha <laughs> taking the time from your um, important research, probably TED Talks. Yeah, teaching, teaching. Um, speaking engagements, maybe inventing stuff. Nude modelling. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just just professors for kicks. do that, right? Ah, oh, sometimes. Yeah. Some of them are quite artistic, and some of them are quite naked. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Alrighty then, Bonnie Bloke. Let's get murdery. Alright. Daniel Stanny Reginald was born in Sri Lanka on August 23, 1991. He came to Western Sydney, Australia when he was three years old with his brother, mother and father. From the very beginning of their new life in Australia, things did not go well. The Department of Community Services became involved with his family following allegations of violence by his father, Daniel was said to have witnessed dozens of incidents of domestic violence at their home. He also experienced excessive physical punishment at the hands of his father. In 2001, when Daniel was just 10 years old, his father murdered his mother. Oh, God. Daniel and his brother were in the family home when their mother was killed. Daniel's father served a 12-year prison term for that. That seems quite light, particularly the fact that his kids were in the house at the time. How traumatising. Yeah, he probably, he probably got like 20 years, but he got out in 12. Yeah, you know, yeah. I, I would um, say. Sentencing math. It's not like normal math. That's right. It's way lighter. After their mother's death, Daniel and his brother came under the parental responsibility of the Department of Community Services, who placed them with a family at Chester Hill. Their placement broke down in 2005 due to Daniel's difficult behaviour, after which he resided at several crisis and medium-term placements. To dull the pain of his traumatic childhood, Daniel engaged in binge drinking, used cannabis and did some petrol sniffing. Before he was 18, he would commit many criminal acts. His record includes two counts of armed robbery with an offensive weapon, one count of custody of a knife in a public place, four counts of assault with intent to rob, one count of stalk and intimidate with intent to cause fear, oh, I hate that one, Mm. two counts of damaging property by fire and two counts of assault with intent to rob armed with an offensive weapon. I like starting fires too. Robbing, weapons, fires. Yeah, there's a bit of the McDonald triad there, isn't there? Yeah, yeah. It's also kind of like, yeah, it's a recipe for doom. Daniel was educated to year nine level. Efforts by his teachers for him to keep attending high school after that fell on deaf ears. In September 2008, he was referred to the post-release support service in an attempt to encourage participation in employment or training in the community, but Daniel refused to do it. Dr Kenneth Nunn, a psychiatrist who interviewed Daniel in 2007 and 2008, expressed the opinion that Daniel did not meet criteria for a psychiatric condition with the exception of conduct disorder. In relation to why Daniel might be acting as he did and what process underlies his behaviours, he reported that Daniel had suffered both before and as a result of the death of his mother with traumas that are sufficient to trouble most young people and is disordered in his psychological function so that his mental life and social function are significantly impaired. Another psychiatrist, a Dr Nunn, had a report compiled at the request of the Children's Court in relation to charges of arson and malicious damage. Dr Nunn said, My view is he does suffer from a mental illness, but his illness is largely trauma-based and not intrinsic psychosis. It's even being argued in the DSM 
They are just about to release a new classification with developmental trauma disorder as a major new diagnosis to capture this situation. But it still remains problematic because people are much more comfortable about saying schizophrenia or bipolar disorder rather than extreme chronic complex post-traumatic stress disorder. Right. Okay. That mm. that that's kind of. I mean, you know, it's kind of doctor speak, but it does make a lot of sense. It a lot really of does. Disorders re- aren't traditional mental illnesses. Well, that's right. Yeah, like, brought on by this horrible circumstance. Mm, yeah. yeah, it's really interesting, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Um, I wonder if they will uh, adjust the DSM to reflect that. Well, another interesting thing Dr. Nunn said was um, he also thought that Daniel had paranoid non-disclosure, which is a symptom of PTSD which means he, he will not accept help. Right. He okay. won't admit to that, he's ha- that he has a problem. Right. In November 2009, 18-year-old Daniel boasted to his brother he was going to rape a woman. Oh, really? During this same month, Daniel attempted to rape two women at knife point, a 24-year-old and a 26-year-old. Although he was incarcerated for the attacks for nine months, he was released in September 2010 after the charges were dropped both women being too traumatised to endure the court process. But um, So he, he attempted, but they, they somehow were able to escape? Yeah, they reported it to the police. Yeah. Police warn he is a serious threat to the community. On November 15, 2011, Daniel was assessed after an incident at Parkley Prison in which he threw a television at a cellmate and set fire in a cell. A psychiatrist found no evidence of mental illness and thought that he was seeking a single-cell placement. The psychiatrist noted antisocial and narcissistic elements of his personality and recommended psychological assessment. By the age of 19, Daniel was out of jail and was employed as a box boy, Tara. A box boy. Is that a different way of saying fuck boy? Well, as a box boy, Daniel spent much of his days sitting at a small desk, slicing open cardboard boxes and cable ties with a Stanley knife. Right, okay, so he just like opens mail. Well, no boxes. Yeah, well, boxes can be posted. <laughs> You're right about that. <laughs> um, You're trying to tell me boxes can't be posted. So a, a Stanley knife is like a, an exacto knife. or Yeah, uh, um, yeah. well, a box cutter. A box cutter, yeah. yeah, exactly. Daniel lived by himself in a boarding house in Croydon, Sydney. 24-year-old Tusha Thacker also rented one of the rooms in the boarding house. Tusha, originally from Western India, had moved to Australia two years earlier to take a postgraduate course in accounting at Sydney's Southern Cross University. She lived in Unit 2 and Daniel in Unit 3. The distance from Unit 2 to Unit 3 was only 1.5 metres. Thin plywood makeshift walls separated the units. A communal bathroom was around 5 metres from the entrance of Unit 2. Between December 29, 2010 and February 11, 2011, numerous searches were conducted by Daniel on his laptop relating to persons convicted of murder and sexual assault. Wikipedia, web pages, newspaper articles... New South Wales Supreme Court judgments relating to murder and sexual assault were accessed online on numerous occasions. That sounds like something we'd do. Yeah. But we have different motives. The searches on the internet included Les Murphy, who was one of the five men sentenced for the rape and murder of Anita Cobby. Disgusting, scum piece of shit dog. Oh, that's an appalling case. Um, I would never cover that. I read a whole Mm. book on it, but... Mm. um, Fucking horrible people. Hmm. Anthony Soule, known as the Cleveland Strangler, a serial killer who was convicted of around 20 counts of murder, rape and kidnapping. 
Well, yeah, he's not nice either. I mean, none of them are, but that Cobby thing. What about Peter dogs. Sutcliffe, the um, Yorkshire Ripper? He was great, wasn't nah, he? Uh, he, was, he had a great sense of humour. He was very um, respectful and kind Well, he murdered 13 ladies. women. No, he's a horrible fuck. I'm Richard, sure they all are. Richard Ramirez, who was convicted and sentenced for 13 counts of murder and 11 counts of sexual assault. The Night Stalker. Hmm. And the Carr brothers, who were convicted of sexual assault and murder of five men and women. The Richard Ramirez and Carr Brothers websites were searched on many occasions. Oh, must have had some really cool shit on them. Yeah. On February 12, 2011, Daniel purchased the largest suitcase he could find at Target Burwood. Mm, uh-oh. Later in the evening, Daniel accessed articles on the internet related to the murder of a child by his mother who put him in a suitcase that was later retrieved from a duck pond. That's very specific. Yeah, it is. Uh, pages related to Christopher Wilder and Billy Glaze were also accessed. Christopher Wilder was a serial killer who abducted and raped at least 12 women and killed eight of them. Billy Glaze was convicted of killing three women. The website claims that he believed that all native women should be raped and killed. Okay, well, that's just wrong. Not satisfied with the depraved Googling he'd already done, even more website searches of people convicted of rape and murder were conducted by Daniel. The searches include Gary Ridgway. Ah, Green River Killer. Who was convicted of 49 murders. After having sex with his victims, Ridgway would strangle them with his hands or ligatures. There was also Nick Park, who was convicted of the murder of his wife and two children, whose bodies were found stuffed in suitcases dumped in bushland. Suitcases, huh? The term body found in suitcase was used in search engines on five occasions on February 19th. On February 28th, Two searches were conducted using the term Meadowbank Park. Following those searches, a map was accessed of the Meadowbank Park area, including the Stormwater Canal. Other websites searched by Daniel included those related to serial killers such as the Daytona Beach Killer, the Milwaukee North Side Strangler, and others. On March 8, 2011, Philip Colbert, the tenant of Unit 1, that's in the same complex, yeah. arrived home to see Tusha, her boyfriend Ali, Syed and Daniel in the hallway. The keys to Tusha's unit were locked inside. The construction of the room was such that there was a gap between the top wall and the ceiling separating Tusha's room and the hallway. Daniel successfully helped Tusha gain access to her room. Ali, oh. Syed and Tusha thanked Daniel for his assistance. Oh, so so he, just, he could get in? He just climbed <gasps> up and got in and unlocked her door. That's terrifying! Yeah. Well, she trusted him. He lives in the same complex. It's um. Oh man, I that that's. She doesn't it, know his history. I know, but you normally get. I'm sorry. This is none of this is her fault. I'm saying it's terrifying, and that attacks usually occur on women from people that that are known to them. Well, that's right. On the same day, Daniel's internet searches related to rapes and murders. His visits to pornographic websites included one titled "Ass Fucking My Virgin Girlfriend." Ah, uh, ass fuck yourself. On the 8th and 9th of March, Daniel called in sick to work at the box factory. Oh, someone else is going to have to cut those boxes. On the morning of the murder, Daniel's access to various websites included Wikipedia pages entitled Chokehold and Grappling Hold and articles related to sexual assault. Pornographic websites that related to girls of Indian descent were also searched. Right, okay, priming up, huh? The last day of Tusha Thakar's life began pleasantly with a leisurely sleep-in after a long, late shift at Woolworths the night before. She was jolted from sleep at 10am by the beep of her mobile phone. It was her boyfriend, Ali Syed. 
They arranged to meet at 1pm for lunch before her 2pm class. Tusha then called Ali at 10.33am. Tusha told Ali she was preparing rice for lunch, then sharing and would call him again when she was leaving for the train station. She never called. Tusha's abode was a cramped single room, one of only three bedsits in a run-down boarding house above an abandoned nail salon in Croydon in the city's inner west. Tusha had added a few modest personal touches, a Persian rug, a cheery yellow bedspread and a small Hindu shrine to what was otherwise a drab room with burnt orange walls. She had been living there for nearly six months after arriving in Australia two years earlier on a student visa. The small room was only five minutes' walk from the railway station. What she liked about it was her security, a steel grill at the end of her floor and a single entry at the rear of the property behind a high fence with a padlock gate. So it'll keep out anyone who doesn't live there. A later examination of Tusha's computer revealed that the computer was switched on at 10.53am, documents were accessed at 11.11am, music played at 11.48am. The next user interaction was at 4.36pm. At 12.09pm, Ali attempted to call Tusha without success. Between 12.09 and 1pm, Ali and his friends attempted to call Tusha on 26 occasions. Wow. Philip Colbert, the tenant of Unit 1, had returned from work after 12.17pm. He noticed that the light was on in Unit 2 and heard Hindi music that was louder than usual. He assumed Ali and Tusha were inside the unit. At around 12.30pm, Philip heard Tusha making a grunting sound that lasted around one second. He thought she was having an argument with her boyfriend. But that was probably when she was killed? Yeah. Philip then went to sleep. At 12.47pm, he received a call from his brother. The music was no longer audible from Unit 2 and he did not hear any other sounds from that room. Philip did, however, hear the slide bolt of Tusha's room and movement in the hallway. At 12.54pm, Daniel called Premier Taxis from his mobile phone to arrange a taxi. At around this time, Philip and his brother heard movement outside his room and the sound of a bump in the hallway. Daniel was carrying a suitcase down the rear stairs of the building. He wheeled the bag along the rear lane and around to Edwin Street. At approximately 1pm, a taxi arrived. The taxi driver asked Daniel to cross the road so they can continue travelling north. Daniel said, no, I've got this bag, can you come and help me? The taxi driver helped Daniel pick up the suitcase and put it in the trunk of the taxi. He asked Daniel why the bag was so heavy. Daniel replied, I've got laptop computers and electrical stuff in it. I've just finished work, I'm going home. The driver later told police that the suitcase weighed over 60 kilos. So like over 120 pounds. Hmm. Daniel asked a taxi driver to take him to an address at Crowley Crescent and Melrose Park. The driver told police that for most of the journey, Daniel was doing something on his mobile phone. But as he approached the roads area, Daniel asked the driver about his work and whether his day had been busy. When the taxi entered Crowley Crescent, the driver pointed to the house that correlated with the address provided by Daniel. But Daniel said, no, keep going. He directed the driver 15 metres away from the house to a bend in the road where the pathway led to Meadowbank Park. Oh, with the maps and the Google searches. And the canals. Yeah. The taxi driver offered to help Daniel with his bag. However, Daniel refused and stated, no problem, it's got wheels. Daniel paid for the fare in cash. Daniel retrieved the suitcase from the trunk of the taxi at around 1.24pm and wheeled the suitcase east from Crowley Crescent towards the Stormwater Canal. Workmen were undertaking repairs near the junction of the Stormwater Canal and the Parramatta River. 
At approximately 1.30pm, the workman saw Daniel as he pushed the suitcase from chest height over the fence into the stormwater drain. The workman saw the suitcase floating in the high tide of the canal. Right, so he did this in front of a bunch of witnesses. Yeah. Criminal mastermind. By 2pm, Ali, concerned about his inability to reach his girlfriend Tusha, decided to drive to Croydon. Upon his arrival, Ali heard music coming from Tusha's unit, which was unlocked. He entered the unit and discovered a pot of cooked rice on the stove and her university clothing was at the end of her bed. Ali noticed that the thongs, or flip-flops, that she would normally wear to the communal bathroom were inside her unit but they were in an unusual position and were wet. He also noticed that Tusha's bath towel was damp. The only thing that Ali noticed that was missing was her purple and maroon sleeveless dress that she wore to walk between her unit and the communal bathroom. After ringing around friends to establish if they'd seen Tusha and coming up with nothing, Ali calls triple zero and reports a missing person. Mutual friends arrive and start fanning out through the local streets searching for her. So you know, Tara, you don't have to wait 24 hours to report a missing... Yeah, I was actually just thinking that. Is that, um, is that true in any country? It's or is just, it just a TV trope? It's just a TV trope. Because mostly I see it in US things. Like, is it true in the... We don't know. Actually, I know it's not true in the UK too. If there's, There are suspicious circumstances. You can report someone missing right away. Right, okay. Then in the late afternoon while he's walking from shop to shop near Croydon Station, uh, Ali is asking every, anyone if they've seen Tusha. Oh, he's panicking. And then Ali walks straight into Daniel. He says to him, did you see the girl who lives next door to you? She's been missing since 11am. No, man, replies Daniel. I leave at 8am and get home at 5pm. A weird thing to say. It is. Uh, then he asks him, did you happen to see her this morning when you were leaving? And Daniel replies, no. When Daniel was questioned by police a bit later, shortly before 6pm, he says that he saw Tusha coming from her room yesterday morning. Later that night, Daniel uses his laptop to visit various websites and articles that included beginnings of a serial killer. Oh my God, he should have totally hung out with Aaron Payich's fucking lame-ass murderer, Gemma Lilly. Remember her from a couple of episodes back? Yeah. She wanted to be a serial killer. They could have killed each other. They that could have been killed nice. each other. It would have been perfect. On the morning of March 11, 2011, workmen retrieved the suitcase from the canal. It's actually the same workmen that saw him put it in it, in well, the canal. They, probably, they were there the next day they or two days later. They noticed yeah. how, much, how hard it was for him to put it over there and wondered what the fuck was in it. They noticed that a black plastic cable tie sealed the zippers. The workmen cut along the side of the bag with a knife and discover Tusha's body. They immediately called Triple O at around um, 8 a.m. When police arrived, they send the suitcase to the Department of Forensic Medicine in Glebe. A Stanley-type knife was located on the top of Tusha, as were a black hairband and a bobby pin. Tusha's body was in the fetal position and was dressed in a short sleeve purple and maroon dress that had been cut by a sharp instrument from the centre neckline all the way down to the bottom hem, causing it to be completely opened. Tusha was not wearing any underwear. A black coaxial television antenna around 5mm in diameter was twice wrapped tightly around Tusha's neck. The ends of the cord were twisted into a tight knot. Dr Brower, who conducted the post-mortem, observed underlying horizontal ligature marks with an area bruising below them. Linear abrasions were noted as were similar abrasions below the chin. 
These injuries being caused by fingernails. Dr. Brower opinion that the fingernail abrasion suggested that Tusha fought back and was aware of the ligature being applied to her neck and she attempted to remove the ligature in self-defense. A gold medalist in judo, Tusha put up a brave fight. Oh, she was a gold medalist in judo. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. <sighs> Dr. Brower noted hemorrhages on her face and her left lower eyelid. Blunt trauma injuries were seen on her face, lips and inner aspect of her right arm. Dr. Brow concluded that the direct cause of death was ligature strangulation. He noted other injuries to her vagina and anus. These were consistent with having been caused by blunt trauma with a penis or object. Daniel Stanny Reginald lied to police about his whereabouts on the day of the murder. He said he was at work, but clearly he was not. What he, did, did he, he should have Googled that, shouldn't he? Does lying to the police work? Well, as you remember, Tara, he called in sick. I know, but, like, does he think they won't check? He lives next door to her. They're going to go to his work and say, was he here this day? No, he called in sick. Also, he's got form. He's been, like, tried, like, he was, there were attempted rapes. Like, really? Oh, no, I'll just lie to the police and they'll believe me. Don't worry, Tara. Indeed, police took the bold decision to arrest him based on the false alibi alone. Thank you. Because they believed he was such a threat to the community. They're not wrong. But they knew they'd need a lot more evidence to have him convicted. Yeah. The evidence was soon to come in the form of dramatic CCTV footage. Oh, interesting. Daniel was arrested by Detective Senior Constable Trent Power and Detective Sergeant Peter Rudens at 11pm on Friday night, March 11, 2011, just two days after the murder. His mobile phone was confiscated and he was interrogated at Campsey Police Station until 3am. What struck us was his icy calmness and absolute politeness, something I don't think I've ever seen in a killer before, said Detective Power. You could tell he was holding the aggression in. Mm. CCTV footage from the taxi, Mario's Pizzeria, Road Shopping Centre and Ashfield Station proved crucial in tying Daniel to the crime. Because of the deterioration of Tusha's body in the canal, semen could not be positively identified, and except for a few stray hairs on Tusha's bed, similar to those of Daniel's, there was no real forensic evidence. I guess some of those searches paid off, huh? Detective Rudens, I love this quote from him, I remember meeting the technician at the vehicle holding yard and looking over his shoulder as he downloaded the footage from the taxi. When I saw Daniel wheeling the same suitcase that contained the body of Tusha, I couldn't believe my eyes. I knew we had him. Brilliant. Data from Daniel's laptop was downloaded bite by murderous bite. Over six months, he had logged nearly 9,000 searches about serial killers and rape, how to remove forensic evidence, court cases involving multiple murder, analysis of ligature patterns during strangulation and maps of canals in Meadowbank Park. Daniel had certainly done his homework. Almost a year later, Daniel pleaded guilty to the murder and rape of Tusha Thakar. Prosecutors asked for Daniel Stanny Reginald to be handed a life sentence, arguing he had clearly decided to school himself as a serial rapist and killer. I'm just glad he wasn't that fucking great at getting away with things so that he couldn't become the serial rapist and killer that he aimed to be. Hmm. Yeah. Justice Price said Daniel's strangulation of Tusha was extraordinarily cruel and he had shown no remorse, empathy or contrition for the pain he had inflicted. The last moments of her life must have been horrifying. This was a terrible way for her to die, he said. 
But Justice Price also said, I am satisfied that there is a real risk the offender will re-offend by committing serious offences or violence of sexual assault. Mm. Daniel Stunny Reginald didn't react as he was sentenced to 45 years with a minimum of 30 years in prison. So he- so what will he be, like 50 when he gets out? 51, yeah. He will first be eligible for release in 2041, so that'll make him 51. Right. Well, I hope he's not strong. One interesting thing that um, Justice Price said, and I read all the court transcripts and documents to do with this case, Um, when he was sentencing him, he said, um, I do not accept the Crown's invitation to find that before the murder, Daniel intended to commit multiple sexual assaults and murders. Although Daniel accessed websites of serial killers before and after the murder, there is no evidence that he purchased more than one suitcase or visited websites of areas other than Meadowbank Park or had other methods of killing or disposing of bodies of future victims. I am unable to be satisfied beyond reasonable doubt that before the murder, Daniel intended to sexually assault and murder more than one person. I disagree, Tara. I disagree as well. I mean, we're not talking about um, proving that he... It's saying intention. His intentions are clear. What are you going to buy, 10 gigantic suitcases? You're not going to do that. No, case by case. Case by case. Yeah, come on. Yeah, I disagree with that. Oh, well, you know, like maybe there's some legal thing I don't understand. Well, look, I guess there isn't solid evidence or he was going to kill anymore, but look at that. But it's about an intention. Yeah. So... Yeah, look, you know, maybe it's just legalese. Look, I just hope they got him on his first murder. I fucking hope so too. to tell you the truth, I think he may have murdered before. What makes you think that? I don't know. It's just something about him that's so creepy and so methodical. And Well, the murder was like he didn't leave DNA evidence. Like it was just the, um, the lying afterwards, not having an alibi and also being caught on four different sorts of CCTV. Um that sort of yeah. got him undone and, and doing that. In fr- like it was the after the fact stuff that got him done. The murder itself, he did seem to to know what he was doing. Uh, look, if you yeah, if you want to get away with murder, you don't kill your neighbour. Uh, look, <laughs> you know, it's Come lucky on. for all of us, the stupidity of some people, right? Yeah. Tisha's family is now left with never-ending grief. Yeah. Dishak Thakar wiped back tears during an interview with media. Uh, from Western India, as he recalls his big sister, a natural joker. She was so joyous, so full of life, he says, and was always so trusting of people. He compared his loss to that of an open wound that will never heal. His parents' health and happiness, he adds, have been ruined. Oh, that's just exactly like my case too. It broke Tisha's boyfriend, Ali Sayed. He was inconsolable. He left his studies and life in Australia to go home. Right. He uh, he lost touch with all of the friends he'd made in the many years he yeah. was in Australia. It was, yeah, ruined so many lives. Yeah, ripple. Ripple, ripple effects. Effect. That's right. Well, there you have it. <sighs> well, I might just go under the table and maybe pour a drink. Oh, but I have a question for you, Tara. Yeah, what? Is Aussie as short stories of criminal stupidity with a quintessential Australian flavour? <gasps> You've listened to an episode or something. How did you find that out? I don't know what those words mean. But... <laughs> All right, that's what happened. You just monkeyed it. You've got to have something here, right? Yeah, You've got I do. something to tell I me? I do. I do indeed. Oh, um, th- uh, look, I'm, I'm so proud of you for actually, you know, on episode number 80, for you to look into what it is. That's amazing. <laughs> well, after 80 episodes, mm-hmm. I actually memorised that hey! bit. Hey! Uh-uh. <laughs> 
Okay, well, this one's another suggestion from Erica Lil Biddy, the insect and reptile queen of the fam bam. And if anyone uh, says she's not, I'll cut them. Oh, really? The box cutter. So a resourceful Brisbane shop owner has fended off a tomahawk-wielding robber by arming himself in an unconventional way. His weapons of choice? Tins of tuna and tubes of Pringles. Oh, wow. Royally shitted off by yet another robbery attempt on his store last Thursday night, Baz Rizk caught the intruder by surprise, making it rain fish and chips on him until he gave up and ran away. Go Bazza. Yeah, CCTV shows Bazza taking the law into his own hands, heading to the aisles for ammunition where the man demanded he hand over the cash. The bandit left empty-handed and well and truly bruised after the onslaught. Bazza said, Unfortunately, you need to take the law into your own hands to protect yourself because after they rob you, they get a slap on the wrist and walk out with nothing. We're not scared of them. It's just the element of surprise, the quick action, the experience we've had. We know what to do. Oh, Bazza, I like your spark. The guy's got a tomahawk and he was about twice as big as me, but size doesn't matter. It's what's inside. It's like this guy does TED Talks, oh, right? Oh, wow. Bazza's, Motivational Bazza, speaker. you're not wrong. Yeah, Bazza. Way to see the world, mate. Now, in case you're wondering, no, this is not the first time Bazza has used snacks to arm himself against would-be criminals. And yes, it worked in the past too. Yeah, there's footage of that, isn't there? Yeah, there is. We'll put it up. Ten years ago, Bazza turned to an Aussie classic to smash the thieving intentions from the noggin of his attacker. He said, last time it was a jar of Vegemite, family-sized, a glass one, right to the head. Oh, that's a, that's a pretty big jar. Yeah, that would, that would really hurt. hurt. Yeah. He said, we'll take him down no matter what they've got in their hands. So this is a PSA to all Queensland criminals. Don't fuck with Bazza the Aussie battler because he will end you and then feast to his victory with the snacks he used to achieve it. <laughs> <laughs> Go Bazza, huh? Go Bazza. Yeah, I've right. seen the footage of that. We'll put that on our Facebook page, right? Yeah, 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 on the page. I believe he doesn't have a broad Australian accent, but hey. <laughs> yeah, by the way, listeners, uh, if you're looking for pics of the people that we talk about, we yeah. put them on our Facebook page. Yeah, we used to put them in the group, but we've decided to put them on the page instead these days. It seems to work well. Hmm. So, yeah, it's a Bloody Murder Facebook page, not group. We have come to the end. We have. I feel like this is a long one. It feels long. So before we go, I'd like to thank some people who took some time out to write us some reviews. So thank you so much, Ohio Bobcat Girl, Julie Farron, and Kensley, or Kens13Lee. I don't know how you say that. Yeah, I think she's just using the three as an E, just to be cool. All right. Sweet. Good work with that. You all rock. You're all rocking invited to my birthday party. Yeah, totally. And if I ever had them, you could come to mine too, but I don't. Because <laughs> <laughs> I feel weird about birthdays. Well, you're born just after the New Year. Yeah, so I am. It's, it's and really everyone's hard to like broke from Christmas and partied out from New Year. Yeah. I mostly just hide under furniture. No, I usually we usually no, go no, to the beach, do. don't we? <laughs> I know, we go to the, no, I don't hide under we furniture. We have a swim. That's we our have tradition. We swim. Like, we go to the beach every time and it's awesome. Hey, uh,. Thanks for listening and thanks to our patrons. If you'd like to support us, visit our website or if you just want to buy us a drink, there's a PayPal donate button there too. And we've had a few of those this week. So thank you so much to Tracy Bailey. Again? Again. Thank you, Tracy. Thank you. I just read a wonderful email from her, which I'm going to reply to in the next day or so. I still need to read that. I haven't had a chance. Yeah. 
And thank you to Martha and to Jake. To Jake, yes, Jake Fucknerski. I miss you and I love you. You are all wonderful people. I've been Barney Black. And I've been Tara Saraban. And again, we did some bloody murder. Please don't forget to review us on iTunes or our Facebook page. And of course, rate and subscribe. It does really help us. Uh, join our Facebook group, The Fam Bam. That's Bloody Murder Podcast, if you wanna. Follow us on Twitter and Snapshit and Insta and all those things. We have all that shit. Check out our website, bloodymurderpodcast.com, for news galleries, more episodes, and some sweet-ass merchandise. Wow, is your voice finally breaking? Oh, yeah. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back next week. Goodbye and adios. And keep kicking against the pricks. Hey, you know what's good in winter? Whiskey. Whiskey. Maybe we should have some. We should have some whiskey. Okay. It warms my cockles. It warms the cockles of your cold, dead heart. That's right. Why well, I've got a cold, dead heart. Why are you clutching at your chesticle area? You love it when I touch my own titties. It's weird. It's like you're rubbing your nips through your. Oh, I make them like I like them like little diamonds. Blood diamonds. Blood diamonds, Tara. My nipples are blood diamonds. They're so sexy. They should be illegal. No. No. <laughs> They're not. Oh, funny bloke. Uh, sexy celebrities. The hot ones. They had, they had the intercom on in the room, and they kept lying that it wasn't on, and they were using sonic pressure on my head since 1997. Yes, Deirdre. De- Deirdre Hepburn. <laughs> Remember I used to call you Deirdre Hepburn? I do. It was very beautiful. I enjoyed it very much. Yeah. Go fuck yourself. Oh, fuck you. I'm putting on some lady swears and then I'm going to swear like a lady. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Fuck, 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 well, fuck, I'm going to rub some more oil into my beard. And some then more you... moonlight oil. <laughs> and then what are you going to do? Oh, break some hearts, probably. Yeah, probably. That's what. That's definitely what I'm going to do. Run the jacks. Oh, that's right. I'm oh, sorry. I've got a girlfriend. <laughs> uh, um, it's not oh, and there'll be lots of crying into pillows tonight, oh, won't there? Oh, the salty tears of the lovelorn Bonnie Bloke fans. That's Look right. Look at it. The cries from overseas. That's real, Tara. That happens. Yeah, I know. It's um, it's uh, ugh, it's just another thing that makes life weird, don't you? Think? All right, you ready for my smoke bomb? Yeah. Barney out. My car was like a rolling billboard with signs all over it, Denise's father Dennis had said. I looked out. Every time I saw some girl with long brown... Brown? Brown is not a word. Shush. Brown. My account... Fuck you. I'm down with the brown. (laughs) (laughs) This is is a serious bit, fucko. My car was like a rolling billboard with signs all over it. Don't it make my brown eyes blue. <laughs> I'm talking about sad parents of I'm a murdered sorry, girl right sorry. now. I, I like what you're doing, but I feel like here isn't the place. <laughs> I die. I'm down with the brown. <laughs> Fuck, I want to throw something at you, cunt burger. Cunt burger. I like mm-hmm. it. Oh, well, that's your new name then, Cunt burger. Oh, I've got to do this fucking thing, don't I? Yep, between them four kids, a couple of... Bu- <laughs> a couple of blowns. bush pigs. A couple of blowns. Yep, between them two, four blowns and twelve blowns. Obsessed with with blowns with the two blown blown. <laughs> <laughs> we might have our fade out, but no one will know what you're talking about. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? 
Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Yeah. 